what I think an inheritance in its best form does is allow a child to do what they want to do in a career, regardless of what they may earn. So if they want to be a school teacher, which is not traditionally a high paying career, but they've got inherited wealth that can supplement that lifestyle so they they can have a more beneficial lifestyle than their salary, their paycheck could provide. That's one of the nice things to allow for a safety net in case something happens and you can't work for a while, or let's say you want to stay at home and raise kids for a little while, and you've got that money that is allowing you to do those things, but not to not work and not contribute and not do anything and just live off of that money. Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Today, we are talking all about how to avoid estate plan surprises. No one likes surprises and estate planning surprises are very rarely positive. And our guest today, Gary Botwinick, has done work in this area now for over three decades. He is an estate planning expert, as well as has a deep background in taxation, working as a tax court litigator for the IRS many years ago. He is the co-managing partner and chair of Einhorn, Barbarito, Frost, and Botwick. They are based out in New Jersey, but work with not only New Jersey residents, but also New York. Gary shares with us some of the top issues that couples face in second marriages, especially if there are children involved, and gives us important tips on how to make sure that your assets pass to your children and ideally to your grandchildren. One of the biggest concerns many individuals understandably have is passing assets to their children that might be divided and taken away during a divorce. If they're in a litigious field, such as a medical doctor and receive a judgment that unfortunately would pierce that and take those assets that way as well. Or even if you're just concerned that your children are not ready to handle significant amounts of wealth. He talks about different ways that you can make sure that you leave money to them so that it's protected from bankruptcy. So without further ado, please help me welcome our fantastic guest today, Gary Botwinick. Gary, it's great to have you here. Thank you for joining us on Financially Ever After. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I would love to hear a little bit more about how you got into the work that you do. I know as a little girl, I never dreamed of becoming a financial advisor. Did you always know you wanted to go into estate planning? How did, you know, or, or, or how did the profession <laughs> well, find you? As a little you? boy, as a little boy, I did as not, little boy. I did not hope to be an estate planning attorney. No, as a little boy, I intended to be an astronaut. And obviously that didn't work out so well. I actually started college as a chemistry major, expecting to go to medical school. And after a year of chemistry, I said, you know, maybe that's not going to work out for me. My father is a CPA, and my brother at that point was probably already a CPA, my older brother. So I said, well, why don't you study accounting? You can do anything with that. So I did. I studied accounting at the University of Florida, go Gators. 
And when I was in my, I think it was my senior year, junior or senior year of college, I decided that maybe law school would be for me. And I took taxation in the accounting program and really enjoyed it and seemed to have a knack for taxation. So I decided to go to law school with the expectation of being a tax attorney. And while taking the tax classes, I unfortunately had the opportunity to work on an estate tax return one summer for my grandmother who had passed away while I was in law school. My father was responsible for preparing the estate tax return. So I took on that responsibility. And in doing that, it hit home for me that that was an area of law that I found intriguing and how to design an estate plan, how I can work with clients. I like working with individuals, how to work with clients to set up their estate plan to ensure a number of objectives. One, that the right people get the right amount of money in the right way. And two, that they do it in an efficient way from a tax perspective. So to the extent we can save taxes, how do we pour that in? And then from there, it just sort of built. I wound up becoming an attorney for the Internal Revenue Service when I came out of law school and doing tax court litigation. And when I had the opportunity to go into private practice, I decided to focus on trust in estates and estate planning. And it served me well, and I've enjoyed doing it for the last 30 years. I think that you, you know, really nail it on the head, both having a personal experience of realizing how important that work is, and then also going to school. And you know, the tax piece is, it's a big piece of estate planning. It is. I came from a family, as I said, my dad was a, an accountant. My older brother is an accountant. My younger brother is an accountant. So we grew up in a household where the family dinner conversations often revolved around financial issues. Even as young kids, we were taught about saving and mm -hmm. investing. And this gave me an opportunity to fold my love of the law into my love of wealth management in such a way that allowed me to enjoy a rather successful career that's been beneficial to myself, to my family. And I enjoy what I do. I love working with my clients. And you make a big difference in their lives. And this recording, I know all of you listening, it's going to be coming out at the end of December, but trust me, you know, it's an evergreen topic of how important it is. But I do find that the beginning of every new year, we set resolutions and you know, usually the number one resolution is around health and losing weight. The number two is then about finances. And I have to say, one of the resolutions I'd love to see more of is like getting our estate planning in order because it's about taking care of yourself. It's about taking care of your loved ones. But Gary, there is a myth that estate planning is for the wealthy, but it's definitely not that. Can you talk a little bit more about why estate planning is so important and why it's so important to have a will, why it's so important to, you know, have all these documents. Apropos of where we are in, in time, right after Thanksgiving, you talked about New Year's resolutions and that's always important. I was talking to my wife yesterday and she said, today is Giving Tuesday, I think is what it's called, where you're supposed to make mm -hmm. charitable gifts yep. on, on this day. I said, wait, we started off with Black Friday, I went to Cyber Monday, now it's Giving Tuesday. I think we should make Wednesday, Will's Wednesday, so that everybody focuses on getting their estate planning done on that day. So it's important regardless of the size of your estate. While there's certainly more at risk, the wealthier you are, oftentimes I can have clients that are, are fairly wealthy, but the estate plan is relatively easy. And I can have clients who are not terribly wealthy and the estate plan is, is really complex. For example, you know, you might have a couple 
that they're in a second marriage and they each have children from the first marriage. And they don't have a lot of money, but what they have is important to them. And they want to ensure that the first one to go wants to ensure that the surviving spouse is well cared for, but they want to make sure that that money ultimately reverts to their children. Mm-hmm. Well, that sort of estate planning for blended families is among the most complicated estate planning activities you can have. That's much more complex than a couple They've been married for 50 years. They've amassed $25 million. They've got two kids and a bunch of grandchildren and everybody's happy. They have estate tax issues, but that's an easier plan than Mm -hmm. the blended family with just a million dollars or less where they have to take care of a second spouse and then children from a first marriage. I'd love to actually jump into that because a lot of the people listening today, you know, have gone through a divorce. They may be dating, you know, they may already have another partner. And the typical relationship is what we call non-traditional family. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. I think, the traditional family now Mm -hmm. where someone's been married previously, there's children. And how do you set up that planning to make sure that if you pass away that your spouse is taken care of, but that ultimately your children are able to be taken care of too? And at the same time, not creating any animosity between their new stepdad or their new stepmom. So it's not a one size fits all. Clients think that they'll come in and we'll we'll pull off the document off the shelf that we've done for Mr. Jones, Mr. Goldstein, and it's the same thing for these people. It's not like that and there's no one size fits all. So it really depends on the circumstances. But there's typically a goal of making sure that the second spouse, the then current spouse is cared for, but also making sure that the children of the first spouse to die are protected. So on a regular basis, clients will come in and they'll say, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to leave everything to the surviving spouse. And then at the surviving spouse, everything gets divided up among all of our children. And that's the way we've decided to do it. And while it might seem to make sense, it's really not a great plan. The concern that I have in a circumstance like that is Let's say the, we'll go traditional husband and wife, make it easier. The husband has died and left everything to the wife. The husband has two children. The wife has two children. And the plan is when the wife dies, everything's going to be divided up among all four children. Well, what happens if the children of the husband don't maintain a relationship with the wife? And now Mm -hmm. the children of the wife are saying, hey, look, Joey and Bobby never call you on your birthday. You haven't seen them during Christmas. You haven't seen them in years. Why are you going to leave a share of your estate to them? That doesn't make much sense. You should just leave it all to us. And it's easy to see how children from the first deceased spouse could be disinherited. Alternatively, let's take that same example. Let's say when the husband has passed away and now the children of the husband don't inherit anything because everything goes to the stepmother, the wife, they may feel as if, hold on a second, I've been disinherited. I don't know if I'm ever going to see that money. She's a spendthrift. She's going to spend it all and I'm not going to get anything. And maybe they don't even have a good relationship. Maybe they never had a good relationship. So why would you set up a plan that way? It leads to all kinds of potential problems. So what I like better is to sit down with the clients and try and figure out how to balance taking care of the surviving spouse and the children from the first marriages. And that's a little tricky. It may include 
dividing up the estate at the first spouse's death, where the children from the first marriage actually get something and the surviving spouse doesn't get everything immediately. Or maybe it's the surviving spouse does get everything, but it's in trust. The trust governs what happens when the surviving spouse dies. It has to go back to the children from the first deceased spouse, or maybe then it gets divided up in four ways. But it's really surprising to me how many clients think well, I'm going to put this plan in place and this is what's going to happen. It doesn't necessarily happen that yeah. way. If you're just leaving it to the surviving spouse, surviving spouse can change his or her mind and his or her plan. And your kids, the kids from the first deceased spouse could get nothing. Gary, I think you bring a really amazing perspective of something that we think is going to be simple and easy isn't necessarily. And I'm thinking of a client of ours who, boy, she's worked with us now 18 years and about nine years ago, got married for the first time. So she doesn't have any children, but he has children Mm -hmm. and his adult children are not far off of her age. Mm. And so they had to do some real smart planning because leaving all the assets to her leaves his children in a really tough place because they're They're hoping for her to die sooner Exactly. For them to, yeah, and they and may not outlive her. Exactly. So they ended up creating something that I thought was really quite beautiful and had a very open conversation with mm-hmm. the kids. And it was a two pronged approach. First off, that during lifetime, he gives gifts to the children and also has set up 529 plans for their grandchildren, sure. which is great. And so everyone is really happy about that. And then, secondly, at death, a certain portion goes outright to the children and the rest goes to a trust for her benefit that his wife's benefit that will then revert to the kids if she were to pass away. And so it was really, I felt like smart. And the thing that they did about this, Gary, that was so insightful was just have real conversations with their kids. There's going to be no surprise. And any concerns that anyone had was brought forward during this process because Gary Tell me a little bit about what can happen when someone feels like they've been disinherited and are really unhappy. Well, certainly there's always a risk of a challenge of an estate plan, whether it's a will or a trust. Those are difficult cases to bring and succeed on. And if you're talking about somebody who's relatively young, not at an age where you're going to be concerned about dementia, then it's a very tough case to make that there's some defect with the estate plan. There was undue influence, coercion, Mm -hmm. duress. Let's say it's a child of a deceased parent who left his estate to his then spouse. It's very hard to make an undue influence case against a spouse of a decedent. That would be a very difficult case to make. So then, you know, you're left with, was there lack of capacity due to dementia? But more than that, it's just the animosity that could exist between the children from the first marriage and the surviving spouse. And it does become an issue with funeral, mom or dad's things that have family sentimental value, and just the horrible relationship that could exist as a result of that, the resentment that I had this birthright, and now this new spouse has come in and influenced my mother or my father in such a way that now I'm either not going to get anything or I'm going to have to wait a long time. So I think what you suggested, Stacey, the the open dialogue in advance is a good idea. And now it's not right for every family. 
I mean, there are some families where if you raise that issue, that's going to be a battle royale till the day that the parent passes away. And I can understand why some clients wouldn't want to deal with that. And they figure, look, I'll let them figure it out when I'm gone, which is not an uncommon refrain. But when people are sensible and they understand what obligations a an individual has to both a spouse and to, and to adult children, then you could have a better dialogue. I think that's true even in a, a traditional nuclear family. It's yeah. a good idea to have these conversations. But certainly in a second marriage, it's important to have that conversation. And talking about you know, a second marriage and some of the planning that you need to have, you know, if she's gone through a divorce and lived through, divorce is typically not an easy thing and not enjoyable. And everybody mm -hmm. walks out at least typically half as wealthy as they did before. Her having a concern about when I leave my money to my children and I pass away, how do I make sure that this goes to them and not their future spouse? and their future spouse that is going to end up divorcing them or their current spouse. Sure. You know, yeah, I mean, that, sometimes, that might end up divorcing them. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, most times, I think, a parent already gets a chance to see their daughter-in-law or son-in-law and the relationship that their son or daughter has with their spouse and may already see some issues that cause them concern. But even when that doesn't exist, there are ways that you can ensure that the wealth that you leave to a child does not wind up being divided in a divorce. Mm -hmm. Now, in most cases, in most states, inherited wealth is exempt from division, what we here in New Jersey call equitable distribution. So, for example, Jamie inherits from her mother a million dollars, and Jamie keeps it in her own name in an account, just the name of Jamie. And she and her husband, John, are somewhere down the line getting divorced. The likelihood is that Jamie's inherited wealth is not going to be subject to division. But if Jamie takes that wealth and goes and buys a beach house with it and puts it in joint name or puts it in a joint bank account, or she on a regular basis is taking money out of that account to maintain the lifestyle, all of those factors can have a negative, they could be a negative factor in the event of John and Jamie's divorce, in my example. And the other thing is that Jamie might very well have a will that leaves everything to John when Jamie's mother's goal was for Jamie to leave what she inherits down to her own children. Yeah, to, to the grandkids, right? Yeah. So one of the ways that I didn't give Jamie's mother a name, let's call her June. June could leave her estate to Jamie in a more protective way. And by that, I mean, put it in a trust. Mm -hmm. Now, I can't tell you how many times people say, oh, trusts are so complicated and I'm not a gazillionaire, so I don't need a trust. Trusts are complicated. They add a level of complexity, but they accomplish so many wonderful things that everybody ought to consider their benefits. Mm -hmm. And in my example with June and Jamie, if June had left her inheritance to Jamie in a trust, a special trust, let's call it a discretionary trust, purely discretionary trust, where a trustee has discretion as to whether or not Jamie gets income or has principal to it, from it, and it stays in that trust and Jamie gets divorced, those assets in most states will not be subject to division. 
in a divorce, nor will any income be attributed to them, to those trust assets, for purposes of determining an alimony or child support obligation. Mm -hmm. Can Joan also then say that, okay, this is a trust that goes for Jamie. Jamie can use the trust for income, Mm -hmm. potentially principal, but then also have part of those documents that at Jamie's demise, it goes to the grandchildren. Yeah, I mean, that's typically the way it goes, is that June, in my example, wants to ensure that it gets down to the grandchildren. She may love her son-in-law very much, but she figures, look, let his parents take care of him. I'm taking care of my daughter and my grandchildren. So if it goes in trust for Jamie, in my example, and Jamie passes away, typically would say to go to Jamie's children. Now, if Jamie's concerned that, hey, that's not fair to John, what I would say to Jamie is, well, if you're really that concerned about it, maybe you should go out buy a life insurance policy on yourself and name John as the beneficiary of the life insurance policy. And maybe you can get some distributions from the trust from time to time, pay some of those premiums on the life insurance. So John is sort of made whole, but mm-hmm. June's money stays in the Jamie and Jamie's children family line. Yeah. And, and it does happen, but it's very rare that when someone gives a gift to their child, that they mean for the gift to go to their child and their spouse. It does happen. It does happen. It does happen. But it's rare. But it's rare. And so that inherited money was not John's anyway. I mean, I I hate to tell John, it wasn't yours, but it can- John John gets some significant benefit from this. Yeah, he gets a a nicer lifestyle, right? Well, if I'm John, I'm thinking to myself, if there's money in Jamie's trust and that's ultimately going to go to my kids, I might be more liberal with my own use of my own money because maybe yeah. I feel I don't need to leave as much to my kids because my mother-in-law has already taken care of them. So that'll yeah. allow me to live a more lavish lifestyle with my own resources. Yeah. But before I jump there, I, again, I just want to reiterate what you said that you should look into a trust before you cross it off. So my husband and I are having a discussion about this with an electric car <laughs> because Gary. Like, yeah, you're going to tie this one in. <laughs> no, I am. Trust me, I'm going to tie it in. And I won't say it's a battle rail, but right now it is a three to one. I'm on the side of no electric car quite yet. Now, Gary, before you judge me and all of you listening, before you, you judge me, we have a lease on mm-hmm. a car mm-hmm. that we would have to buy the lease out. I was like, you know, make the financial case for me and then we'll do it. But because we had to buy out the lease, the additional larger expense of the electric car didn't make sense. But once the lease is done, it actually makes more sense for us, even though it's a higher monthly lease because we're not having the cost of gas, right? Right. But the thing is, is that I would not have known that unless we did the calculation to see. And that's what I'm just saying to everybody listening. Like before you write off Mm -hmm. a trust, take a look and see, does it, accomplish your goals in a more elegant way that really protects your family. So that's where I was going with it. Before you write it off, I think that's really important. I think it's a good point. And also talk to a lawyer before you write it off as just something for wealthy people. And that it means my kid's not going to be able to access his or her money that I'm leaving to him or her. It's not true at all. I mean, there can be quite flexible terms in a trust to allow the child to gain access to that money. And I think that the benefits that you get from a trust are so significant that you want to consider it. And it's not just protection in the event of divorce. Let's say your kid is is a a medical doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or somebody has liability exposure. Those assets are protected from liability. 
So if your kid who's a surgeon has a bad day at the office and winds up getting a judgment against, against for $25 million, while her personal assets are subject to a judgment, the assets held in a trust are not. Let's say your kid is phenomenally successful and is already concerned about estate taxes for herself or, or himself or as a couple. You can put this money in trust for your child in such a way that it won't be subject to estate taxes at your kid's death. So you get to skip a generation of estate taxes. That's a huge benefit. And also, there's also a benefit to just making your kid think twice about what mom or dad's intention was when they're thinking about taking money out of that trust. Well, did mom or dad really intend for me to use it to do something frivolous with it, which I was otherwise going to do? Maybe I think twice about that, or maybe I can use it to deflect the influence of a spouse who's a spendthrift, who says, I want to spend it in this way and say, well, and he says, go invade the trust, go to the trustee and see if you can get it from the trust. Your child could say, well, that really wasn't what mom or dad intended. And it's sure if I had the money, I could just do it, but I don't. Mom and dad wanted that to go to the children. Yeah. So yeah, I, have, makes sense. I, have a I have a responsibility to be a good steward of that wealth. And that's part of the benefit of the trust. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you brought this up because I wanted to talk about estate tax. Estate tax federal exemption is a little over 12 million for 2022 going up next year. What does that mean? Does that mean anyone below that amount in their estate that they pass on is not going to be subject to any type of estate tax? Kind of. But let's talk about where we've been. I mean, I don't think I'm quite that old yet. <laughs> <laughs> but the exemption when I started doing this work was $600,000. And sure, it's gone up, but it has gone up drastically over the last 10 to 15 years. And to be at a point now, we're going into 2023, it's just going to be under $13 million a person. That means a husband and wife together could pass almost $26 million free yeah. of estate tax. It's a good number. It's a big number. Now, that number is scheduled to be cut in half on January 1, 2026, without an act of Congress. And I don't know about you, but I don't think that Congress, the Democrats and Republicans can get together on anything. So I suspect that we're going to be at the end of 2025, not knowing what's going to happen in 2026. And in fact, there may be legislation in 2026 that's retroactive to January 1, 2026, that doesn't come out until, say, late January or February of that year. But your question was, if I'm below the exemption, does that mean I'm okay? I don't need to be worried about estate taxes? Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's a large exemption. So it really only hits very few families. What it means, though, is let's step back for a second. A husband leaving assets or one spouse leaving assets to another spouse, as long as the receiving spouse is a U.S. citizen, there is no estate tax on that. Yep. So I used to say, if you're Bill and Melinda Gates, that doesn't work anymore. Or Bezos, that doesn't work anymore. But if you have a happily married couple that are worth a billion dollars and the husband dies first and leaves a billion dollars to his wife, there's no estate tax, even though he's well over the $13 million exemption for 2023. The reason is there's a complete exemption for transfers to surviving spouses. Now, with the surviving spouse's death, we have a problem when it goes to the next generation because we only have the remaining exemption and anything over that is subject to an estate tax. That's the federal law. Now, certain states have an estate tax. For example, New Jersey has an estate, had an estate tax. It no longer does. 
New York does have an estate tax of about six, with an exemption of about $6 million. And there are still a few other states that have the most states don't have estate taxes anymore. And then there are some estates that have other things like inheritance taxes, like New Jersey, for example, which is a state I'm intimately familiar with. New Jersey has an inheritance tax, which when they repeal the estate tax, they maintain the inheritance tax. And the inheritance tax says that doesn't matter how much money you leave to anybody. It's a question of what the relationship between the decedent and the recipient is. So for example, let's say you're a single woman, you have no children and you have a million dollar estate and you leave it to all of your nieces and nephews. There's gonna be a 15% tax on that in New Jersey because New Jersey has an inheritance tax. Now, if instead of leaving it to your nieces and nephews, you left it to your children, there would be no inheritance tax because they're considered class A beneficiaries and there's no inheritance tax. Pennsylvania has a very similar system. So you have to look at your individual state. I know a lot of people all over the country listen to this, Stacey. So it depends on your particular state, but yeah. federal exemption, that's across the country. That's a $12.92 million exemption next year. So you're pretty good if you're a husband and wife and you're under $26 million, at least until 2026, you're good. And if you want to give gifts during your lifetime, so you've got children and I'm forgetting what you would call this, but you're able to give $16,000 to each child. Well, those annual exclusion gifts. Annual exclusion, thank you. If you give more than 16,000, what happens? Well, it's probably the most misunderstood thing I hear on a regular basis. So I will have people come to me and they say that I wanted to give my kid money to help her buy a house. So I was yep. gonna give her yeah. $100,000 as a down payment, but I don't wanna give her $100,000 because I don't wanna pay any gift taxes. And they're happy to know that they're not going to have to pay gift taxes on that. They're simply going to have to file a gift tax return. What I mean by that is this. We have a unified system at the federal level. You have a lifetime exemption of next year, $12.92 million. So $13 million lifetime exemption. You can use it during life or you can use it at death. So let's say that client says, I want to give $100,000 to my daughter to buy a house. And that's a down payment. And they say they don't want to pay gift tax. And I'll say, well, you don't have to. What we're going to do is the first $17,000, we're in 2023 already. So $17,000 is an annual exclusion gift. That's the amount that you can give each year. And you don't use any exemption. It's a total freebie. So first $17,000, no tax consequence at all. But if you're giving $100,000, that means you're $83,000 over the $17,000 exemption. All that means is that you have to file a gift tax return. It's an informational return only. No, no gift tax will be paid. And you will reduce your $12.92 million lifetime exemption by $83,000 in my example. You notify the IRS, hey, I'm using up some of my exemption. And you just have less exemption if you pass away or you mm -hmm. want to make future gifts. Now, if you're never going to be anywhere close to the $13 million, which 99% of the public will never be near that. Yeah. Who cares? So what? So you use up some of your exemption. You're never going to use it anyway. So yeah. make the $100,000 gift. Feel good about it. That way you get to see your kid enjoy it. They don't have to wait until you pass to inherit the money. Yeah, no. And there are some really interesting things you can do too with your children. For example, 529 plans, you can put money into, you know, for grandchildren too. And they allow you to pre-fund for five years. 2023, uh -huh. you know, you could do five years of that 17,000. And you guys are not seeing me online, but I'm using my calculator. That's 85,000 that you can put in to pre-fund for five years if you really want to 
make a big difference. You're able to do- You can give double that number. Yeah, exactly. Because you can do a gift from each person to- Husband can make a gift and the wife can make a gift. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about what we call non-traditional marriages, but now, I mean, very traditional, but what about this fact? I mean, I'm very fortunate. We'll, we'll see. I have a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old and I'm having an event here. And I said, you know, I, I need your help. I will pay you, but I need you guys to go ahead and help me with cleaning up dishes and just making sure people's glasses are refreshed and all that. And these two are so smart. They're like, okay, we will take the hourly wage that you're giving us, but we also want benefits. And <laughs> My son is, is is specializing. One of the classes he's taking is business for his A levels. That is going to unionize on you soon. He actually said he, it's him and his sister don't agree on a lot, Gary, but they do. He's like, we got to unionize, <laughs> and so my husband and I decided that we were going to also then charge them a dollar for every coffee they make from the coffee maker to you know make our money back. So long story made short, I think my kids are going to be probably pretty responsible with money, especially because gosh. They hear it from me every single day, but you never know. So how can you leave money to your kids or whomever you love and make sure that it's protected from bankruptcy? They may not have issues with spending now, but we don't know where they're going to be in 10, 15, 20, 30 years where they're receiving this money. And if you have life insurance money as well, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars, it could be even millions of dollars. And all of a sudden, this is going out outright to someone who may have the skills to deal with it, maybe does not. So how do you plan for that, Gary? The best way to plan for that is there's a number of ways. One, which I think you're doing is teaching your kids about money and savings and the importance of savings and thrift and all of those important things. The other thing is, and especially if you have young kids, and this might be a scary term to to people, but the use of a trust. So yeah. if, let's say, I mean, your kids are very young and let's say you and your husband are going to leave, you're planning your estate and you're concerned that what happens if you both, you're both getting on a trip or going on a trip or something and leaving the kids and they're young, are you going to leave this money outright to them at the ages that they are right now? That seems insane. In fact, in New Jersey, for example, if you were to do that, the money would be held by the surrogate in the county where you reside until they reach age 18. Well, I guess that's good that somebody's holding it for them, but 18 is kind of young. And not only that, it's kind of a pain. Anytime the guardian would need the money, they'd have to go make an application to the surrogate. What's a better plan is to hold it in trust and have that money. It's not uncommon for clients to, especially those with kids under say 21 years, of age to establish a trust that says that they don't get the money right away. Maybe there's a staged distribution. So at age 25, they'll get a third. At age 30, they'll get a third. At age 35, they'll get a third. I might recommend that to clients, although I'm, I'm more inclined to recommend a lifetime trust. But let's say they said, no, no we're, we're not really interested in that. It's just too complicated for us. We just want it held so, while they're young and then uh, get it to them over, over time. I like the staged distribution rather than having them all get all of it at a certain age, because let's say I want them all to get it at age 21. Well, many 21-year-olds are not responsible with money. Even if they have good sense, they might not have experience in dealing with this money, and they may trust the wrong people, and then the money's all gone. 
So I like a stage distribution where even if the kid does something colossally stupid with it, when they first get it, let's say they get a third at age 25, and they do something really dumb with it. Well, at least we've kept two thirds protected and hopefully they've learned a lesson and they certainly have gained experience in a not a very inexpensive way. So I like at a minimum for young kids, a staged distribution. But again, I also like a trust that goes on for the child's lifetime. All the protection that a trust offers, protection from a future ex-spouse, protection from creditors, guarantees that it goes to grandchildren and not to a daughter-in-law or son-in-law, some guardrails against the kids squandering all the money and using it all up right away, and maybe even having the benefit of having a trustee in there who could impart some wisdom and work together with the child so the child knows mom and dad worked hard for this money and it wasn't their idea that you would just go and spend it in an an irresponsible way. So I'm not going to make that distribution to you to go buy that bar that you have in mind. Instead, if you have a business plan because you want to start a new business, get me the business plan and we'll talk about how we can fund that business going forward. So I like the protection that a trust offers. Yeah, no, I do too. And I'll tell you, we've done the exact same thing as we have stage distributions for our kids. Mm-hmm. And I've seen vast amounts of wealth really destroy the ambition of children. And so we've made it very clear to our kids that this money is our money. Mm-hmm. We've worked our tail feathers off for it. And we'll always make sure you're okay, especially if you have health issues. But we're going to be spending it. Or we're going to be having fun. And if there's some left over. You'll get Mm -hmm. it in a trust and it's going to come to you over your lifetime. And then also just having the conversation about how much money we do have, which we're very clear with the kids and they know exactly how much money we have, but also how much it costs to live our life. And the dollars that they might get at $15 an hour for minimum wage may feel like a lot to them. And so helping them understand what would that give you? So if you were to receive that and we would annualize that for an annual income, what would that really look like? Well, after that calculation, both of them decided that they were going to college and they were going to go to a really good college too and try and get a good job. So there's just so many lessons to be learned. And I feel like estate planning is a good entryway into it. It's sort of where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, it does. Especially for children whose parents have worked hard and provided them with a comfortable lifestyle, I think it's important that they understand the responsibility that goes along with an inheritance mom and dad's money. If mom and dad worked really hard, they expect you to be a prudent steward of that wealth. That it wasn't so that you could squander it within the first five years after they're gone and not work and not be a responsible contributing member of society. What I think an inheritance in its best form does is allow a child to do what they want to do in a career, regardless of what they may earn. So if they want to be a school teacher, which is not traditionally a high paying career, but they've got inherited wealth that can supplement that lifestyle so they they can have a more beneficial lifestyle than their salary, their paycheck could provide. That's one of the nice things to allow for a safety net in case something happens and you can't work for a while, or let's say you want to stay at home and raise kids for a little while, and you've got that money that is allowing you to do those things, but not to not work and not contribute and not do anything and just live off of that money because 
I have yet to find a client who would list that as one of their goals for their child. Yeah, you're just not going to. And I would love to end on that. And so talking about you and helping clients, how do our listeners get a hold of you, Gary? They could certainly go to my website. It is einhornlawyers.com. That's E-I-N-H-O-R-N lawyers, L-A-W-Y-E-R-S.com. The name of the firm is Einhorn Barbarito Frost and Botwinick. We're in Denville, New Jersey, which is right in suburban Morris County, not more than 30 minutes from the George Washington Bridge. And my phone number is 973-627-7300. My recommendation is go on the website. You can find me as one of the attorneys there and read my bio. And I post a lot of articles, blogs, and some videos on matters that are important in an estate planning, on estate planning practice. And I'd be happy to talk to any of them. And Gary, my understanding, you can also work with people um, not only in New Jersey, but also New York. Is that right? Yeah. So our firm has attorneys that are admitted in New York. So we can work on New York clients. We can work on New Jersey clients. And if we have clients from other states, from time to time, we'll collaborate with attorneys in other, other states. I'm sure you can imagine we've got a lot of clients who, who make their way down to Florida or pay mm. part of the year in Florida or up in the Berkshires. We may not be able to do an entire project for somebody from out of state, but we, we could certainly have a role. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being here, Gary. And thank you. These were not simple, straightforward things, but boy, really important for anyone to know. So what I wish everybody is that as you start the new year and you think about those resolutions, that you put this at the top of the list because not only is it important for you, but it's also really important for the people you love. So thank you for being here, Gary. Maybe after Thanksgiving, we have Will Wednesday. I have to say, Will Wednesday sounds really, really, really good. (laughs) Will Wednesday. Love it. Thank you, Gary. I so enjoyed our conversation. And I feel that Gary has such an amazing skill to take some pretty complex situations and really detail them in a way that's simple and understand. My hope for you is that this gives you the motivation to put your state planning documents in order. And if you do have them, to take another look and possibly refresh them. The number one priority you should have is taking care of yourself and taking care of your loved ones. And so my hope for 2023 is that you make this the year to not only get on top of your estate planning, but also to get on top of your financial planning and investment portfolio. If you have any questions and would like a second opinion or x-ray analysis of your financial situation and current investment holdings, please reach out to me. You can reach me at stacy at francisfinancial.com or you can reach out to us via the show notes that we have below. Thank you again for joining. It was wonderful to have you and see you in two weeks.